Skyborn, Episode 6, Till Death Us Do Part, by K.G. Lockrams. I don't remember much about myself in terms of my personality within the context of my freshman year in high school. I don't remember being particularly popular or outgoing, though the comments people wrote in my yearbook paint the picture of an outgoing, well-liked, kind, caring, and thoughtful person. I was surprised by what so many people had to say, most of whom I couldn't even remember. When I look back on that year, I remember the hurdles and not much else. As I entered high school, I moved from a school with a total population of 600 students to one with over 1,400. My sister was beginning her senior year, and her positive change in attitude toward me after our brother had last attacked her continued, and we managed to find neutral ground with one another. She was always on the honor roll, participated in band and choir, and regularly competed in county and statewide music contests. She was well-liked by the teachers and staff and was popular with her peers, all of which gave me a leg up, and I was looking forward to sharing a school with her. I had also decided to join marching band to spend time with her. When she graduated, she'd be leaving for college, and I knew she wouldn't be spending much time at home ever again. That had been made clear for years, and she had good reason to want to move on and away. The band needed more French horn players, and the director asked me if I'd be willing to switch from trumpet to horn. I saw it as another opportunity to spend time with my sister and said yes. She and I took private lessons together for a time from a woman in a nearby symphony orchestra. My sister had been competing with her horn for six years, and I was no match for her skill or raw talent, but I enjoyed being in her company and loved listening to her play. Boot camp for marching band began every August, a few weeks ahead of the normal school year. Practice was held at either the high school or the town park with the merry-go-wheel. I realized during that time that my sister and I were better together when separate from the rest of our family and out of the house. This time together gave us the chance to explore each other as people in an unfamiliar dynamic. Boot camp, and the fact that my sister had access to a car now and again, also helped me make friends in advance of starting classes in September. High school was the beginning of my being able to make choices that would directly impact my future. There were three set tracks at our high school. Each track had a set of mandatory courses, but we were allowed to select a couple of electives. Having even that small amount of control over my life helped my self-esteem. Bobby and I were in a couple of classes together, but had different lunch periods. We'd hang out as often as possible, but I was no longer bullying in favor of working. Money gave me freedom. We continued to spend most Saturday nights together at his house, sometimes with his family, and sometimes just the two of us. Either way, we'd watch the HBO movie of the week in his basement rec room, until he started dating Claire, a friend of mine from band. In the aftermath of offering my father a blowjob, and in the confusion about my sexual identity, I did everything I could do to keep my mind occupied. Was I a fag, as people called me since fifth grade? I honestly didn't know. I filled my days with school, band, choir, and working at the music store, and my nights with homework, practice, reading, chores, and television. AIDS was all over the news at the time, and consistently presented in such a way that if you were a homosexual, then you were going to die from AIDS. It was covered as if one led inexorably to the other. Being homosexual was a death sentence. AIDS kills fags dead. It was a common phrase at the time. Before AIDS, the media made me believe that if someone were homosexual, they were by default a pedophile, which did not explain my father's predilections. 
There were no positive role models at the time. What few characters there were on TV or in movies were always extreme stereotypes who ended up ridiculed, vilified, beaten, or murdered. The one positive thing TV did give me was a new word for fag. Gay. Fag was now exclusively used in the derogatory, while gay was used in a neutral or accepting way. Bedtime was the hardest time of the day for me. Lying there, sleepless, replaying the scenes with my father from earlier that year, I would torment myself with this routine until eventually I'd fall asleep, or not. Sleep was not always a given from this point forward in my life. My love for Bobby was always present, and I worked hard to keep it in check. I would catch myself looking at him too long or too much, and consciously shift my focus to something else. If he got too close to me physically, I'd add some distance. Simultaneously, I was still using Jim Palmer as my masturbatory fantasy, along with Tom Selleck, John Eric Hexham, Parker Stevenson, the captain of the football team, and, well, let's just say it was a long and very male list. It was a frightening time to imagine being anything other than heterosexual. I wasn't jealous of Claire. She was smart, funny, and didn't take any shit from anyone. I admired people who could stand up to others, as that was not my strong suit. I was more annoyed that their relationship occasionally robbed me of my time with him. The stability of Bobby and my friendship was rare in my life and incredibly important to me. He was safe. He genuinely cared for me. And we had a ritual every Saturday night I relied on to get me through each week. Beyond what else I may have been feeling for him, I didn't want to lose any of that. That fall, I became friends with Lyle's mom, Bet. Bet was the neighbor from England who had moved in across the street from us several years earlier, who everyone met during their chimney fire. Lyle was one of my most dedicated bullies, who constantly asserted I was a fag and would throw the limp wrist gesture my way any chance he got. And suddenly, our relationship changed. We would occasionally watch TV together at his house. I can't remember how that happened, but I remember we were both surprised at it. We watched the movie Stripes together once and realized we had similar senses of humor. He was my first frenemy. I would come over to his house randomly after school, and if he wasn't around, I would hang out with Bette. I was fascinated by her English accent, her Betty Davis hairdo, and her wry sense of humor. Bette's husband traveled a lot for work. Her eldest son had joined the military and was stationed in Germany, and Lyle was at that age where he didn't want anything to do with his mother. Bette and I filled unspoken voids for one another. She lived across the street from our front door for years and had no doubt seen and heard enough to know I came from a troubled home. Whatever the reason, she decided to take me under her wing. Bette loved to play cards. We'd occasionally spend entire afternoons playing canasta, drinking Earl Grey tea, and eating biscuits. We shared a love of music. She was a fan of big band, swing, and anything from World War II. Anytime I hear Rum and Coca-Cola by the Andrews sisters, I am instantly back at her dining room table playing cards and can smell her cigarettes and hear her raspy laugh. In many ways, she was a younger version of my grandmother. Bet also loved to play bingo at one of the churches in town, and she'd occasionally spot me $5 and take me with her. She was a shark when it came to bingo, and she'd play multiple cards simultaneously, ink bottles at the ready by one hand, and her endless cigarettes going in the other. We genuinely had fun together. She would ask me about my life and listened when I spoke. And for her, I think, given the men in her family, she liked my tender heart and the fact I took an equal interest in her life and listened when she spoke. We saw and heard one another. Such a simple thing. 
and rarer than it should be. One of the friends I made at band camp was a senior girl who played flute. The guys in band were always talking about how easy she was. Most of the guys who were saying this were also bullies, so I assumed they were just being mean. Whether she was or wasn't didn't matter to me. I wasn't interested in her sexually, and who was I to judge? I assumed my disinterest in her was why she gravitated toward me in the first place. I always imagined I felt safe to her. We enjoyed one another's company at band camp and made each other laugh. Sometimes that's all it takes. One cold fall night, sitting next to each other on the way back from an away game, she asked if she could rest her head in my lap. Sure, I said. She folded her jacket, put it on my lap as a pillow, and laid down. I'm cold, she said. Can you put your jacket over me? Sure. I took off my jacket and covered her. Suddenly, I felt her hand slide up my thigh, and she began to massage my penis through my wool uniform pants. I was instantly erect. At that age, it didn't take more than friction to cause an erection. As she engaged with me in a sexual manner, I completely froze. The initial physical contact felt good, but I could feel myself begin to dissociate. It was similar to what happened in the bedroom my brother and I shared when I was six, and he first pimped me out to his friend Sam. As soon as Sam had put his penis in my mouth, I was physically there, but I was no longer in my body. I remember the smell of her hair and the slight stench of the bus full of sweaty teenagers in damp wool uniforms. I remember the bus was humid from everyone's breath and how the humidity had condensed on the windows against the cold night air and was running down the bus windows in rivulets. I even remember what side of the bus we were on. But everything about my body after that first jolt of sexual energy is inaccessible. The next thing I remember is stepping off the bus and feeling violated. In hindsight, I realized that was a defining moment for me. I see it now as a revelation as to how my sexual abuse had corrupted my sense of sexual boundaries. From the second she sexualized me, I froze and dissociated. Although many high school boys would have seen that experience as something amazing and brag about it, I never told anyone. When I saw her the following week at marching band practice, she completely ignored me. At the time, I assumed she'd either gotten what she wanted out of the experience or was disappointed at my lack of reaction. She never spoke to me again. I remember feeling betrayed. As Bobby devoted more of his free time to Claire, I decided to ask out a girl from band. Diane was in my grade and lived in another part of the county. Neither of us could drive, and I still wasn't allowed to have people over to the house very often, especially with the new downturn in our parents' relationship. So we didn't get to see each other much outside of school. Our first date was a hayride with a bunch of kids from band. Other than that, we'd hang out at school, through marching band events, and occasionally at her house on a weekend when my mother felt like making the trip to drop me off and pick me up. About an hour from where we lived was a large enclosed mall with a movie theater. Diane and her mother would often go as a day trip. They invited me along with them one Saturday. Mothers loved me. They were going to see the mall's Christmas display, and Diane suggested we could see a movie while her mom did some Christmas shopping. We saw The Last Unicorn. It was an animated children's movie with a G rating, and as we watched, surrounded by kids and families, Diane took my hand and put it on her breast, under her coat jacket, but over her wool sweater. She often encouraged me to engage in various forms of sexual contact with her, but I kept things limited to kissing. I was uncomfortable given the setting, and pulled my hand away. She let out a frustrated sigh. The following weekend, we were in her bedroom playing a game on her computer. 
When I came back into the room from the bathroom, she was standing with her back to me. Stand behind me and put your arms around my waist, she said as I entered, and I did as she asked. She took my left hand and moved it down her abdomen, below the waistband of her jeans, and into her underwear. As my fingers grazed her pubic hair, she let out a soft sigh. I felt wholly uncomfortable. Do you want to have sex? she asked. I withdrew my hand. She turned around with an angry look on her face. I'm saving myself for marriage, I blurted out. I wasn't intentionally lying to her as much as to myself. I simply didn't want to have sex with her. I thought saying that I was saving myself for marriage was the kindest way to shut it down without rejecting her specifically or having to have a bigger conversation I was not prepared to have. I didn't know what I wanted sexually. I didn't want to hurt anyone else the way I imagined I'd hurt Laura at my birthday party earlier that year. Diane didn't take my comment well and broke up with me just before Christmas. It's funny. I remember I cried when I read her breakup note. I was so confused and full of self-loathing. What happened with my father the year before just ate at my core. And on top of that, in the span of six weeks, I'd gotten an unwelcomed handjob from one girl and rejected an offer of sex from another. I genuinely liked Diane as a person. She was smart, fun to be around. What the hell was wrong with me? My sister's best friend at school, Jasmine, was also a senior and nothing short of amazing. She was beautiful, smart, kind, talented, and when she'd walk into her room, you could feel a positive energy shift from most everyone around her. She was homecoming queen that fall. She was in the honor society. She was going to be the lead in the spring musical and was the kind of person who always had a kind word for anyone who needed one. She was also self-deprecating, full of self-doubt, and whenever I looked at her hands, they were trembling, always trembling. My sister revealed her story to me in bits and pieces. She was being physically and psychologically abused by her parents. Whenever Jasmine came home from anywhere, she had to submit to drug and alcohol screens. Sometimes she'd come home and her mother would scream various accusations at her and call her a whore. Her father ran the local pharmacy where Jasmine worked after school, which is how he had access to the test kits. Her mother was believed to suffer from some untreated mental health issue that may or may not have simply been a cover for a devastating problem with alcohol. Either way, her mother wasn't getting the treatment she needed, and Jasmine was the focus of her sickness. Jasmine did her best, every single day, while her parents did all they could to tear her down and crush her spirit. After a particularly brutal confrontation from her mother, in which she threatened to kill Jasmine, my sister received a call for help and asked our mom if Jasmine could come stay with us for a few days. I was surprised when she said yes, and my sister left to pick her up and bring her to our house. In just a few days, everything I thought I knew about Jasmine shifted. I realized that although someone may appear to have all the things people envy, it doesn't mean they actually do. We never know what darkness or struggle someone is dealing with in their lives. Jasmine was gifted with so many incredible things but all she wanted was her parents' love and support, which she didn't have, and it made the rest meaningless for her. Eventually, Jasmine returned home. She and I never spoke of those days once they passed. I kept a respectful distance on the matter, as I knew I only had a small portion of her bigger story and so couldn't fully understand what she was dealing with and I didn't want to meddle. But I knew what it was like to carry a burden. After her stay with us, anytime she'd see me at school, she'd give me this look... I could have been down the hall or across the choir room, and any time our eyes met, 
She would look at me with this mixture of gratitude and I see you, Kit. She didn't know it, but she taught me about grace and fortitude. Jasmine wasn't the only friend my sister offered safe harbor. Later that year, Ellie found herself in a similar situation at home. Like Jasmine, they'd met their freshman year and we were all in choir together. I knew less about Ellie's situation, and my sister was not forthcoming with details, just that she'd had a rift with her parents and needed a place to stay. She arrived one day, looking shell-shocked, and could not stop crying. Given our parents' general no-one-in-the-house rule, I had asked my sister why she thought our mother let Jasmine and Ellie stay with us. Remember mom's friend from high school, Mrs. Hartnett, she asked? Her parents disowned her and threw her out of her home her senior year. She lived with mom for almost a year before they graduated. I think it's because of that. It was a rare gesture of empathy from our mother, but that did make sense. As Ellie was packing to go back home, I went into my bedroom closet and took down the box with the teddy bear my grandmother had given me the year before for my birthday. I went into the living room. My sister had already gone to the car, and Ellie was about to walk out. Ellie, wait. I want you to have something. She turned back, and I held the box out to her. What's this? She asked. Open it. Oh, wow. Was this yours when you were a little kid? She asked. Uh, yeah, I said. My grandmother gave it to me, but I want you to have it. Are you sure? Don't you like it anymore? She asked. I love it, but, well, I think you need it more than I do. She took it, hugged me, cried again, but in a different way, and left. Diane and I managed to mend our friendship the weeks following our breakup, and we were back to laughing with each other and enjoying each other's company as friends. A new girl had transferred to her school just after the winter break, Simone. We first met in the high school library one day after school. I was waiting for the late bus, and she, her father. Our eyes met, and I could practically hear the click the second we said hello to each other. I don't know what the connection was between us, but it was mutual and strong. It was the first time I'd met someone where, from the very beginning, I felt as if I'd known them forever. She had the warmest, clearest eyes, and the biggest hair I'd ever seen. She was a sophomore, and told me this was already her third high school, as her father hopped around following jobs. We quickly started spending time together in study hall and after school while waiting for buses or parental pickups. There were times when all we'd do is make eye contact and start laughing at some unstated but mutually understood joke. Every moment we spent together was natural and easy. There wasn't a romantic vibe, at least not that I could feel. We just clicked on some instinctual and fundamental level. A spring dance was announced, and I decided to ask her to go with me, which meant I'd have to get my mother to drive, as neither Simone nor I had access to a car. One night after dinner, while doing the dishes with my mother, I broached the topic. Mom, I want to take Simone out to the dance next month. Will you take us? Who's Simone? She said flatly. She's the girl that started after Christmas break. Her father is the new chef at that restaurant. She stopped what she was doing and turned to face me. You mean that black girl? She was going to say something else, but caught herself. Yes, Simone, I said. Under no circumstances are you going to take some black girl to any dance. I forbid it. You forbid it? I asked, slightly mocking her dramatic word choice. Do you know what your father would say? After years of his racist, sexist, homophobic dogma, I knew exactly what my father would say. But I doubt he would have given Simone the courtesy of referring to her as that black girl. It would have been so much worse. No son of mine is going to go out with some colored girl. Colored? Who was this woman? 
Our father missed no opportunity to let a racial or ethnic slur go unuttered or unremarked upon. But other than my mother's regular commentary about that faggoty bank teller, Michael, my mother, up until this very conversation, had done a remarkable job of keeping her racism to herself. Really? I said. Yes, and don't bring it up again. And that was that. I didn't tell Simone. I hadn't yet asked her to the dance, and there was no point in telling her. I didn't want to hurt her with my mother's words. In the end, none of it mattered. She and her father moved away before the dance, less than three months before they'd arrived. That spring I turned 15 and was legally able to work. I started my first real job working at a fast food place with Bobby. It opened the year before, and I had heard from Lyle that Tommy had helped build it. The job was a blessing and a curse. It was nice to be out of the house in the evenings and earning some money, but the job came with regular access to frozen cookie dough, which was not helping my weight. Whenever I would go on break and someone would ask, where's Kit? If Bobby was working, he'd call out, check the freezer. And that's usually where I was, eating balls of frozen chocolate chip cookie dough out of a carton. We had to manually empty the deep fryers by carrying the hot oil from the restaurant to the container near the dumpster at the end of every shift. One night, a coworker and I carried the vat between us. We misstepped, and I was splattered with oil so hot it melted my polyester slacks and left a long river-like blister down my leg. No amount of frozen cookie dough in the world was worth that, and I quit the next day. As the school year started to wind down, our mother sat my sister and me down to talk to us. There's no easy way to say this, she said, fighting back tears. But your father and I are getting divorced. I know it's upsetting, but I thought it was time for you to know. My sister and I looked at each other and almost in unison said, Thank God. It's about time. Our mother looked at us surprised. He's beaten all He's of so us. abusive. You cry all the time. Be yelling. You're both miserable. We're all miserable. She processed our reaction for a moment and then went on to tell us that he was going to seal off the second floor from the first and convert the computer room at the top of the stairs off our dining room into a kitchen. There was already an outside door at the bottom of the staircase, and that would be the entrance to his part of the house. This news did not go over as well with my sister and me. Our mom explained that in our state, if you had any children under 18, you had to be separated for a year before you could be granted a divorce. My sister had turned 18 a few months earlier, but I was still a minor, She turned and looked at me. Her look said, So this is your fault. I ignored it. Their plan was to live out their one-year separation with our father upstairs and us and our mother downstairs. He was dividing our single-family home into two apartments, which would satisfy the state's requirement for a legal separation, and allowed them to run out the clock on their marriage in the cheapest possible way. He's going to be living upstairs the whole time? I asked. Yes, she said and started to cry. My sister and I didn't move as we waited for any other shoes to drop. I hate crying, our mother said. I'm so ugly when I cry. She had said this my whole life, and I often wondered who taught her to think that. After she pulled herself together, she began moving her things into the spare room next to my sister's bedroom, where our paternal grandmother had once slept. It turned out our parents had already hired attorneys and were fairly far along in their decisions. Before the school year ended, my mother pulled me aside one-on-one. Money is going to be tight, so I've started the process to have you do a summer work program at the Board of Education. What program, I asked. In exchange for working full-time for the Board of Ed this July and August, you'll get free lunch at school for the year. Given that the lunch was a dollar at school, my first thought was, how poor are we? What will I do, I asked. 
You'll be working with the custodian. And she walked out of the room. In the meantime, I went back to working at the music store. My sister had been accepted to the college of her choice and graduated that June. We were planning on going to visit our grandmother. This year, it would be only my mom, my sister, and me. One Saturday before we left for vacation, I spent the day working at the store. When I got home, the doorway to the second floor staircase had been sealed with drywall. There was no advance notice that it would be happening that day. No discussion about it. No explanation for how or even if we were allowed to go upstairs. My father never said a word to me about the divorce. He had completely stopped interacting with me. I came home that day, and there was a wall where a doorway used to be. The house and their marriage were officially split in two. Despite all the years of having been treated with an almost complete disregard for my feelings and sense of identity, this really upset me. No more access to the computer when computer science was the one topic I was excelling in at school. What childhood toys I had were stored in the attic, where my sister and I used to hide from my brother and father. It's odd to have warm feelings for a hiding place. But when she and I would hide in the attic together, having pulled the drawstring up behind us, we had what passed for fun together, quietly playing with our old things among the dead flies and sawdust. I couldn't sleep that night. My head was full of questions. Had Mom asked for the divorce because she knew on some level that he had been sexually abusing me? Was she leaving him because I had offered him a blowjob, and she knew on some level that I must have learned somewhere that that was okay? Was she doing this to protect me? No. None of that made any sense, given our history. Or was she leaving him because she was done being embarrassed by his running around behind her back? I had no idea. She wasn't offering any insights. And what about custody? I wouldn't turn 18 for three years. What would custody or visitation even look like during this setup? Would I have to sleep upstairs on weekends? Only one of my parents' friends had divorced, and his ex-wife went into a nunnery. At school, only two of my friends' parents had gotten divorced. Their parents were always vying for the affection and attention of their kids, so there were double the birthdays and double the holidays. I wondered for a short time what that would be like. Would they compete for my love and affection? I remember spending quite a lot of time fantasizing about this scenario, with absolutely no real-world history in my family to support it. And underneath it all, I was sure it was my fault because of the blowjob offer the year before. When it came time to leave for our grandmother's house, we flew Pan Am. The main purpose of the trip was for our mother and aunt to continue sorting through their father's things. He had so much artwork and artifacts from all over the world that needed to be dispositioned. It was clear our grandmother couldn't maintain the house on her own, and it was too big for her to live in alone. But she wasn't yet ready to leave. They had spent their lives together in that house, raised a family, buried a child. Her husband had designed the blueprints, had it built, and painted murals everywhere. He was everywhere. Walking away, knowing the next people would most likely paint over their life together, must have been gut-wrenching for her. It was not a happy visit. When we got home, my mother and brother had the first fight I'd ever seen where my mother didn't back down and he didn't physically assault her. While we were away, to curry favor with our father, our brother had used his key to come into our half of the house, took all of our mother's legal documents concerning the divorce, and gave them to our father. I don't know how she knew, but she did. She kept asking, how could you do this to me? He didn't deny it. She was devastated. My sister and I were not at all surprised. He was a sociopath, just like our father. We could see it, but our mother couldn't. Our mother was always surprised every single time. Not long after, I learned my mother wasn't asking for child support or alimony. 
She worked part-time for a local gynecologist as a secretary and nurse and didn't make much money or have her own health insurance. Our father had been cheating on her openly for years. I was so angry she didn't fight for herself or for me. It sent me the message that I was not worth fighting for and therefore worthless. My mother wasn't one to fight for herself, but I thought at the very least she could have had her attorney fight for both of us. Wasn't that the point of having one? The only missing piece of information at this point was custody. I waited and waited, thinking one of them would say something to me about it, but neither ever did. Finally, I had to ask, What are you and Dad doing about me in terms of custody and visitation? Nothing. He isn't asking for any. He'll be staying with me. I was stunned at her cruel, flat delivery of that news. Nothing. He didn't ask for any visitation or even shared custody of me. Even given the lifetime of abuse and neglect at his hands, I was deeply hurt. I didn't want to be anywhere near him, and at the same time, I still wanted my father to love me and to want me. I wanted him to want to try and repair our damaged relationship, but he simply had no interest in me at all. I had fulfilled all the needs he had of me by the age of six when he stopped the incest. My father didn't want me, and my mother wasn't fighting to ensure he'd pay for my care. It further reinforced the messaging I'd received forever, that I had no value and was not lovable. My sister spent the rest of the summer at her job and getting ready to leave for college in the fall. My brother wasn't around much that summer and after the fight with our mother, chose to hang out almost exclusively with our father. Our father, our brother, our brother's friends would hang out upstairs all night, drinking and laughing, while we listened through our ceiling. When it came time for me to start at the Board of Education, it was a welcome distraction. My mom would drop me off on her way to work and pick me up on her way home. I learned how to reglaze windows. Each week I'd mow the entire campus, wearing the Radio Shack AM-FM headphones I'd bought with my money from the music store. I learned how to wax the floors with an industrial floor polisher, and I had fun doing it. My favorite task that summer was spending several weeks helping inventory the county's textbooks. This was how I learned I enjoyed and had a talent for bringing order to chaos. I worked alongside a woman in her mid-twenties who was a self-professed nudist. She spent our days telling me about the various activities she and her boyfriend had gotten into with the nudist community. I didn't know there was such a thing. There were no sexual overtones or overtures. She was just being herself and sharing that part of her life with me. Meeting her and hearing her stories made the entire summer program worthwhile. It was fascinating. This was also the year I learned people would tell me practically anything about themselves upon first meeting me, and it's been like that for me ever since. Late that summer, our father moved his girlfriend upstairs into his new apartment. They were around the same age, and she had two children of her own from a prior marriage, both of whom were already almost through college and out of the house. I had never heard of anyone doing such a cruel thing during a divorce situation. My sister and I hadn't even met the woman, and she was suddenly a part of our daily lives as we'd see her coming and going and had to listen to them living their new life together through the ceiling. And given my bedroom was under theirs, I occasionally had to listen to them have sex. I would lie in my bed beneath them, filled with rage and sorrow. The week before school started, I heard that one of the guys my brother had pipped me out to had died. His name was Larry. At the time my brother pipped me out to him, Larry was 12 to my 8. My brother would often use one of the homes under construction in a new section of our neighborhood for this activity. Larry picked me up at my house on his bicycle and rode us to the partially constructed home. We went up into the attic so no one could see through a window. It was the middle of the afternoon, 
and I can recall the smell of the fresh lumber and the blast of summer heat in the attic. What do I do? he asked. Well, the other guys usually just lie on the floor and pull their shorts and underwear down. He got on the floor, but didn't pull his shorts down. He lay there with his eyes closed. I stood there, waiting. Nothing happened. Sweat started running down my spine. He propped himself up on his elbows and said, I don't want to do this. I stood there, silent. He looked at me and said, Do you want to do this? I didn't have a choice in the matter. I was sure my brother would beat the shit out of me if I ever refused. I stood there, quietly, considering his question, and he gave me the time to do so. Eventually, I said, No. He stood up, walked over to me, and gently grabbed my bicep. Let's get out of here, he said. We left the house, got back on his bike, and he rode me home. I had forgotten all about that until I wrote this episode, and now I believe it was Larry who gave me the courage to say no to that kid who propositioned me the day I was standing in front of my house in line for the ice cream truck. I am sure that saying no to that kid changed the course of my life for the better. Six years after that afternoon in the attic with Larry, he graduated from high school, and two months after that, he drove himself to a nearby bridge one night and threw himself from it. He had jumped near the summit of the bridge, some 250 feet above ground level. He missed the water and landed in a parking lot along the canal. He was believed to have died on impact. Larry helped save my life, then went on to take his own. Epilogue As I produce each episode, I find new revelations in my family history. In this instance, I realized that our father had been planning to leave our mother since he built the second-story addition to our home in 1975. As children, we take a remarkable amount of inconsistent data and assimilate or dismiss it. It never occurred to me that the door at the bottom of the steps to the second floor did not need to be there. There was a glass sliding door in the dining room not eight feet away. I also never wondered or asked why the first room at the top of the steps to the second floor was never finished. For eight years, it sat with bare studs and a subfloor. I don't think I even noticed all the roughed-in plumbing, the copper pipes and sewer lines for sinks and a laundry. It simply never occurred to me. The room was just the computer room. As I listened to my story as I produced it, I found myself stuck on those two inconsistencies. And the only thing that made sense was that his plan all along was to divide the house and divorce our mother. I also find the timing interesting. The second story was finished at the same time as his incest, and I can't help but think that that was no coincidence. I don't know why he lingered when he had his escape planned, but now I can't deny that my offering him a blowjob was the catalyst for his finally following through with his original plan. I wonder if he realized the jig was up and he was about to be called out for his actions. He had to know there was a clock counting down somewhere that eventually one or all of us would remember what he'd done. All these years later, and I just put that together. I had my first in-person session with my therapist since COVID during the production of this episode. She's been listening to the podcast and says she feels as though I've done some tremendous growth and seem to be healing some long-standing core wounds. I agree. She asked if we could do some EMDR and check in on my inner children involved with the core traumas I've been discussing in my podcast, which meant we were going to use two of the most transformative modalities in my personal therapy journey, 
which also happen to be my two least favorite, inner child work and EMDR. Inner child work is, at its core, conjuring memories of one's younger self at the various ages one's trauma or traumas occurred, and then having conversations with them. Sometimes it is to hear what your younger self has to say to you, information a part of you squirreled away that you don't directly remember, and sometimes it's to speak to them and share something you want them to know, or a combination of the two. These conversations can be spoken aloud or held in one's head. When asked by any therapist to do inner child work, I have always felt embarrassed, foolish, silly, and agonizingly vulnerable. It is unnerving to have a conversation with a part of oneself that no longer physically exists, and I always feel I'm a bit too old to pretend. And yet, I cannot deny the benefit I have received in having these conversations over the years. EMDR is a bit more technical, and I'd encourage you to look it up. In a nutshell, trauma memory is chemically tagged and stored differently by our brains than is normal memory. Normal memories eventually pass into long-term memory storage. Because trauma memories are chemically different, they never move into long-term storage. The chemical tags of trauma memories are what causes to be physically hijacked by our parasympathetic systems. When we have a memory that causes a measurable physical response, fear, increased heart rate or respiratory rate, that is a trauma memory. EMDR allows your brain to change the chemical markers, break the trauma bond, which then allows the memories to pass into long-term memory storage, which provides much needed relief. The EMDR device we use is a pair of vibrating paddles attached to a control unit held by the therapist. As the client, I hold one paddle in each hand, and they are set to vibrate at different intervals and intensities. This gets both hemispheres of your brain active, which allows you to alter the chemical bonds associated to the memories you review. It has been, for me, an incredibly helpful therapeutic tool. I put the paddles in my hands, and she activated the device. She then asked me to close my eyes and do a scan of my body to see how I was feeling. Next, she had me imagine some of the things I'd been talking about on my podcast. My mind instantly focused on two incidents. The time I put my father's dick in my mouth while he was passed out drunk, and the time I had verbally offered him a blowjob. And bam, there I was, my eighth grade self. Normally, I don't see that version of my inner child because those are the most shame-filled memories, and historically, I have done all I could to avoid them. But when I do see that version of myself, it takes him some time to get him to even make eye contact with me. I had the entirety of the scenes uploaded in my mind's eye. The house, the nights in question, my father, passed out, and also me, standing in his bedroom door. These scenes were fresh in my mind because of the podcast, and picturing them was effortless. What surprised me was how present-day me felt no shame, no guilt. My heart rate didn't rise, and my breathing remained consistent. Next, my therapist invited me to have a conversation with younger me. The pronouns can get a bit confusing, but bear with me. As usual, I, he, wouldn't make eye contact with present-day me, but he was facing me in the open, and that was progress. My therapist knows I can't have these conversations aloud, even in front of her, so she encouraged me to silently check in with my younger self and see what we may have to say to each other. I've never done this before, but here's the conversation I had with my younger self. 
I see you. These inner child sessions always start for me in a neutral, dark, ethereal place. He looked up at me guardedly, as if I'd caught him doing something he shouldn't be doing, and avoided making eye contact. To him, I've always been an interloper in these memories. I know what you did. I know what you offered to do. My younger self stared back at me anxiously, with our thick head of curly hair and my old, thick-lensed glasses. He rarely spoke to me and remained silent. I dove in. So here's the deal. You don't remember this right now, but your father and a friend of his were molesting you pretty much from infancy until the time you were six years old. He made wide-eyed eye contact. So this? And I conjured us standing in the family room where our father was passed out drunk, and I pointed at the sectional sofa. Our father, in his nightshirt, and my younger self pushing it up his thighs to put his dick in our mouth. This shit right here is his fault. And I pointed squarely at our father. You did what you were groomed to do. You just don't remember what he did to you because it would have broken you. We couldn't have handled it, and so we blocked off the memories. We forgot. But his incest is why you felt compelled to try and suck his dick. Because he taught us that the only value we had to him was in pleasing him sexually. And the only affection we ever had from him was through sex. Younger me turned to me, made eye contact, but remained silent. And the same thing goes for when our brother was pipping us out. He was also abused by dad. But what he did to us, pimping us out, that is why he pimped us out, but it didn't make it right. He was old enough to know what he was doing was wrong, but dad broke him. And he pulled us into his damage and traumatized us further in the process. You, we, did nothing wrong. It wasn't our fault. Being pimped out was not why you came up here. I changed the scene to standing in our parents' bedroom doorway and offered our father a blowjob. It all comes back to dad's abuse. It all comes back to dad. He was the one who was responsible, and he is the one who needs to carry the guilt and the shame and the pain of it all. Not you, not me, not us. And then younger me changed the scene, and we were standing in the front lawn of the house the night it happened. It was just the two of us, and he looked at me and said, Thank you. I held open my arms, and he stepped into them. I put my giant adult hand on the back of his head in his overgrown mane of curly hair and pulled him close to my chest. None of that was your fault, I said. You did the best you could do in a house of crazy. You were lovable and loved. And you know how I know that? Because we survived. And because I love you. We stayed like that for a few moments silently holding each other and then I let go and he stepped back I put my hands on my little shoulders and said you've got this and he smiled and then I was back sitting across from my therapist feeling calm and centered tell me she said how did it go it was great and I meant it I felt great I feel great <laughs>